you'd like to read along with me for an opening passage that will set the foundation for our study this morning, we're going to be considering a story that's found over in the book of Exodus in chapter 17. And for our reading, we'll just read verses 8 through 13. So beginning there in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 8, it says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. This is certainly a unique story. It's a story of the first battle, if I uh, have my timeline correct, in Israel's history, their first true battle after leaving Egypt. And it's a very strange battle. It's not one in conventional methods. There's some strange things that take place. And yet within the story, I think there are some wonderful lessons for God's people about working together and about playing our part and about trusting in the deliverance of our God. And so I hope to study this story with you this morning and give us all some things to think about and some things to encourage us in our own service as part of God's people. Sometimes it's easy to read through the various narratives and stories of the Bible, especially if we've grown up in a home that's read the Bible, or we've gone to church for some time and heard many of the stories uh, read to us, and not really think about the strangeness or the uniqueness of the events that take place. And here in Exodus chapter 17, it's easy for us to, perhaps from our perspective, to read through and to just read about this battle that takes place and how it's won and go on without stopping to consider some of the things that take place and the lessons to be learned. But when we come to Exodus chapter 17, Israel is still a uh, blossoming nation. They have only been out of slavery for a very, very short time. It was only perhaps months ago that they actually were slaves in the land of Egypt. They had been there for over 400 years. And so every one of these people that are a part of the nation of Israel have literally grown up as slaves. They have some men, they have a lot of men that are of fighting age. In fact, later we'll find in the book of Numbers that there's over 600,000 men above the age of 20 that are capable to fight. But when we think about that, as big as that host was, that 600,000 men whose former experience was making bricks and slavery. They were not soldiers, they were not warriors, they were not trained in the art of warfare and defending themselves. Most of these men, before they left Egypt, had probably never picked up a sword or a spear or a shield because as slaves they wouldn't have been allowed to. You don't typically let your enslaved force make weapons or possess weapons or learn to use the weapons lest they turn them against you. And so these people are not experienced in warfare. That's been all God's power to this point that has delivered them. It is God who rained down the ten plagues upon Egypt. Israel had absolutely nothing to do with those ten plagues. They didn't work a bit to bring those plagues upon Egypt. It was clearly the raw power of God at work against Egypt. 
Then they got to the Red Sea and they were cornered and they were afraid as, as Pharaoh's army was bearing down on them. And surely part of the reason they were worried is that was the world's perhaps most elite fighting force that was coming at them. But again, they had to do nothing except walk. God parted the Red Sea for them. They walked across that ground. Everybody can at least do that much. They can at least walk across. And so they did. And as Pharaoh's armies and his chariots plunged into that canyon of water as well, hoping to overtake them, the last Israelite stepped across and God closed those waters back on Pharaoh's army and Pharaoh and his army was decimated and destroyed. And Israel enjoyed the victory. Again, clearly by God's power. Well, they continue to march through the wilderness and they are marching towards Sinai that, where they will spend considerable time. But during that trip, they are attacked. They're attacked by a group of people known as the Amalekites. And it's not only a surprising attack, but it's a cowardly attack. We can read over in the book of Deuteronomy 25 that when Amalek attacked, not, they didn't just come to the front and challenge Israel head on. You might think that's probably where some of the leaders may have been or where some of the fighting force may have been inexperienced as they were. But we find out in Deuteronomy 25 that Amalek actually attacked the back of the caravan. They attacked the back of the train. This is where some of the older, some of the youngest, where some of the sick and the stragglers would have been. And so they tried to cut off this group. It's just a cruel, vicious type of attack that Amalek brings upon the people of Israel. But Israel is going to have to do something. They're going to have to defend themselves. And so Moses tells for Joshua, he says, you pick out some men and you go out and fight with Amalek. And I'm going to go stand up on a hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, I wonder what Joshua thought about that. Again, Joshua seems to be a courageous man from what we read. He seems to be a man full of the Spirit. He seems to be a man who trusts in God. But as far as we know, Joshua has never fought a single day in his life. And he's supposed to go pick out men who likewise have never fought in their life. And they apparently are going to have to go to battle. This time, God's not just going to destroy the Amalekites for them while they stand back and watch. He's going to make them get into the fray. He's going to make them work and toil and fight to be able to overcome this enemy. But even be that as it may, God is still going to make it clear by the end of the battle that it's not their strength that's going to win the day. It is still God who is going to deliver them. And we'll have more to say about that perhaps when we get to the end. And so Joshua gathers some men. I don't know how many men he gathered, but he gathers a force that they believe is sufficient to go and to fight this enemy. And he goes and he confronts these Amalekites who may not be an elite fighting squad, who may not be the world's best warriors, but surely they are better equipped and better trained than these people who have been slaves up until just a very short time ago. But they muster a force and they march against their enemies. And Moses goes along with two other men, his brother Aaron and a man named Hur, and they go up to this hilltop that's overlooking where this battle is about to take place. And Moses takes something with him. He takes a staff that has been in his possession for quite a while now. It's a staff that has become known as the staff of God. This is the staff that he has raised over the Red Sea. This is the staff he cast down that became a serpent. This is a staff that Moses has been carrying with him for a very long time. 
And as he goes up on this hill, apparently God had either instructed him or he knew somehow that this is what he was supposed to do. But whenever Moses was up on the hill, he would stand and he would raise this staff of God above his head and above his shoulders. And as long as he stood there like this, as long as the staff of God was risen high, Joshua and the army below were successful. And they began to win the battle. And it would become clear that they were winning and they were prevailing, perhaps just a while longer, and they would be able to win this great battle. And yet, you can imagine standing there, you know, you can do this for a little while, even with the big walking staff in your hands, but you stand there for a minute, and five minutes, and 20 minutes, before long, this begins to get tiring. It doesn't matter how strong you are. By the way, Moses is over 80 years old at this point. But it wouldn't matter how strong you are. At some point, that begins to wear you out. Your shoulders and your arms begin to tremble and to get tired. And so Moses would left, that would come down and he might rest for a few moments. And it wouldn't take long to realize that when Moses rested and that staff came down, that down in the valley, things had turned around. Now Amalek was getting the upper hand. They were starting to push Joshua and the army back. And it began to look like maybe all hope was lost and that Amalek was going to prevail after all. And so Moses would raise that staff again and the tide would turn. But as the day goes on, it's harder and harder for Moses to hold the staff up for any time at all because he's growing tired. And so Aaron and Hur, perhaps along with Moses, come up with an idea they gather some stones and they bring them so that Moses can sit down. And they have Moses raise his hands and Aaron and Hur stand beside him, each one on one side, perhaps just holding Moses' elbows and holding or maybe behind him and holding his arm up so that it's not only his strength, but their strength is added to his. And he holds the staff up and we're told that his hands were steady until the sun went down. So all day, those three men stand there, Moses sitting there, that staff raised high until the going down of the sun. And the outcome is Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword and Israel prevails. Now, as you look at that story, there's a few things to realize. One of those important lessons is that literally every person has a part to play. As you look at the role of these different people and what they did, there were very different functions. There were very different activities. There may have even been different elements of risk. And yet everyone had a part to play. And every one of those roles was important. Joshua had a part to play. And the army that he had chosen, they had to go fight. They had to literally be down there in the mud and the blood and the gore, risking their lives, swinging their swords and their spears, fighting the army. Somebody had to go fight the army. Apparently God didn't tell Moses to just go stand on top of the hill with the staff. And as long as he did that, somehow Amalek would be defeated. It required some soldiers on the forefront. And that was Joshua's part. And that was the army's part. Moses had a part. Moses was supposed to hold the staff. Now, I don't know about you, but I may have thought that was a pretty easy task. Especially if I'm one of those guys down on the front lines and I'm looking the enemy in the face and I'm swinging the sword and I'm risking my life. Maybe I even suffer injury during this attack. I may begin to feel like Moses had it pretty easy, right? All that guy had to do was stand up on top of a hill. There's no danger up there and hold a stick up for a while. 
That's not a very important part, is it? And yet if Moses isn't up there holding up that stick, I would die by the end of the day. Turns out to be a pretty important part. And then you've got Aaron and Hur. They don't even hold up the stick. They're up there as bystanders, and all they do is they hold Moses' arms because he's too weak to hold the stick up all day. And yet, had Aaron and Hur not been there helping Moses, he would have been too weary and too weak on his own to hold up the staff. And Joshua and the army would have been defeated. Every person had a part to play. Some may have appeared more glorious than others. Some may have seemed to be more important than others. But which part of the equation can you take away and still have success at the end of the day? Do you think at the end of the day, Joshua and the army despised Aaron and Hur because they played a lesser part? doubt it. They were probably very thankful that those men had saved their lives. Do you think Aaron and Hur and Moses belittled the army because they weren't high enough in God's esteem to be up on top of the hill overseeing? I doubt it. I imagine they appreciated these men's bravery and willingness to go and to fight the opposing army. You see, each role was important, and all of these individuals played their part. Now, as we think about the kingdom of God today, as we think about the church, we are soldiers for Christ. We are citizens in the kingdom of God. This is something I know that we've talked about a lot here at this congregation and from this pulpit, but it bears repeating, every one of us has a role to play. Now, those roles may be different. Some of those roles may be very public. Some of those roles may be very private. Some of those roles may seem more glamorous. Some of those roles may seem to be thankless. But every single role is essential and every single role is needed. And every role and every person's participation in the work of God is important and necessary. If you would turn over to 1 Corinthians 12, and this is kind of a longer reading, but I'd like to go ahead and read the whole passage here. We're going to begin in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12 and read through verse 30. This is a pretty familiar passage, but there's several important points here along the lines of what we're making. Paul writing to the Corinthian Christians who were plagued by division and plagued by disunity, he reminds them of who they are in Christ. And he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head of the, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another." 
If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Verse 31, but earnestly desire the highest gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. I know this is a very common or well-known passage. It's used quite frequently or at least referenced. It's a very simple metaphor that Paul uses and yet a very fitting and powerful one. We are the body of Christ. As the church, the church is the body. And when you think about that term and that terminology, it's very fitting for the church. We understand how a body works. We have one body. And yet our body is made up of millions and millions of parts all the way down to the various atoms and then you grow from there and you've got muscles and tissues and ligaments and bones and blood and vessels and organs and then what's easier to see we've got fingers and hands and eyes and ears and all of these different parts of the body and all of them are important all of them don't do the same thing Many things in our body are very different from others, and they serve entirely different functions even sometimes, and yet they are important. Now, there are two main problems that we have in groups that t people tend to do, and Paul addresses both of them there in 1 Corinthians 12. One of the things that we tend to do is we tend to look at others and think, well, I can't do that, therefore my work is not important. I can't convert people very well. I have a hard time speaking to others. But you know, brother so-and-so, he just naturally seems to be able to talk with others. And he, you know, he never meets a stranger. And it doesn't seem like it takes him two minutes and he's in a Bible conversation with somebody. And he's got a Bible study going. And I have a hard time even, even meeting somebody. There's nothing I can do. Or I'm not a preacher. I can't stand up in front of uh, an audience of people and proclaim the word of God. I can't travel and go other places and preach the gospel. I have a hard time holding Bible studies. I have a hard... We can pick out people that are great at so many things and then look at our lives and think, I can't do that. I'm not a great singer. I'm not a great uh, prayer. I'm not great at visiting other people. I'm not good at comforting other people. Whatever it is, we look at someone else and we see their strengths and we think, because I'm not that, I don't have a part to play. And Paul's analogy is very simple. What if the ear were to say, well, I can't see? Because Can the ear see? No. It's not its function. But would you like to have no ears because they didn't see? Of course not. That's ludicrous. You want to be able to see and hear. And so you can't say, well, because I can't do that, I have no function, I have no role, I have no importance. That's absolutely not true. Yes, there may be other roles in the church, but we have our roles, we have our talents, our abilities, and we need to use them. Now, the other thing that people sometimes do is sometimes we look down on others because they don't do what we do. For example, the I might say, well, seeing is really important. So I'm more important than the ear. Or the head may say, I house the brain and this is where all the important stuff happens. I'm more important than the feet. Kind of a silly example in some ways that Paul's using and yet it makes a lot of sense. And so while we don't look to others and say, I can't do that, I'm not important. 
We also don't look and say, they can't do what I do, so I'm more important. Well, they can't preach. Well, they don't convert very many people. Well, they don't visit the sick as often as I do. Well, they aren't as hospitable as I am. Well, they don't do this and they don't do that, and look at me. Again, what about the day there in the valley when Israel fought Amalek? What if Joshua would have said, I can't, I can't lead this people as well as Moses, so I'll just give up now. Or what if Aaron and Hur would have looked down on and despised the army because they weren't quite important enough to be right along, to be the right and left hand men of Moses? That's foolishness. That's silly. It's arrogant. They needed to work together. And in the church, we need to work together as well. Another passage that's a bit shorter but helps us with the same idea is Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I've always thought that's an interesting list. There's some things on there that we always talk about, you know, teaching or leading. If you have the ability to teach, then teach. Or if you're a woman, then teach within your parameters. If you're a man and you can teach publicly, teach publicly. If you're a man and you can't teach publicly, make sure that you're teaching in your home and teach privately where you can. If you're a woman of the congregation, teach your family. Teach others that you have influence over in the privacy that is acceptable. All of us have realms where we can teach. So teach if service in our serving. Now, there are some people that are really just naturally good at serving. This isn't to say that the rest of us shouldn't serve. It's not an excuse to be like, well, I'm just not very good at serving others, so I guess I won't do that. Some of us have to work really hard at that, though. We have to learn what it means to serve. While some people, it just seems like a natural inclination. It just seems like if there's an opportunity to serve and to help someone, they see it immediately, and they drop everything to go do that. It's just natural to them. And maybe that's you. And if that's you, then serve. And serve well. For those of us that have to work a bit harder, learn from them and appreciate that role. The one who contributes in generosity. I've heard so many people, and I've thought this in my own mind, you know, people always say, oh, I wish I made some more money so I could give better. Love to give more. Well, some people don't have to say that because they, they do have an abundance and they have an ability to give. So give. And the rest of us should probably really consider whether we are as poor as we think we are. We might have a better ability to give. But he says the one who contributes or gives in generosity. Maybe there's nothing else that you can do except to be generous to others. That's a pretty big gift and a pretty big help in the kingdom of God. The one who does acts of mercy. 
with cheerfulness. How important is it to have people that are merciful? You know, those people that just seem to be in tune with the needs of others. Some of us do a great job of shaking hands and saying, how you doing? Oh, that's wonderful, and not really thinking much about it. And then there's people that just seem to always know when someone's having a bad day, when someone's struggling, when someone needs something. And how important that is amongst a congregation of God's people. We need those people. And we need you to be doing your job with cheerfulness. We need you to be encouraging others. We need you to be helping others. We need those that exhort. We need everybody. We don't just need someone to stand in the pulpit. We don't just need someone to lead songs. We don't just need people to do the public things. We need everybody. We need those too. We need those that will lead and do so zealously. But we need everybody. And as we all fulfill our functions, we need to work together. Again, consider the story that we've talked about. Joshua, in some ways, played the biggest role, you might say. He led the army. He did the fighting. And yet he also, in many ways, was the most humble of the group. Not that the others weren't humble, but we're told that Moses basically commanded Joshua. He said, Joshua, you go and pick out some men and you go fight. Do you know what we're told Joshua did? He listened and he obeyed. He followed the leadership. He didn't sit there and say, I don't think that sounds very fair. I think her should share some of this responsibility. He accepted his role. He humbled himself. He obeyed. And he did so courageously. And he played a major part in delivering Israel that day. Aaron and her, they helped. You know, when you look at this story, and I'd imagine around the camp that night, there probably weren't a lot of people that were actually talking about how great of a job Aaron and her did holding the elbows of Moses up. That's a pretty thankless job. There were probably a lot of people that were clapping Joshua on the back and the soldiers for their bravery and their courage. But I'd also like to think that at the end of the day, Aaron and her did not watch all of the congratulations with envy. But they were happy that they were able to play their small part and do what they could to help God's people. Not encouraging us to overlook one another, but as we go about our Christian life, Many times there will be little acts of mercy, little acts of service, little ways that we can have conversations with our worldly neighbors and with our Christian brethren that nobody else ever knows about and that nobody thanks us for, that nobody congratulates us on, and that may seem to be totally overlooked. And all the while we may listen to people congratulate somebody else and tell someone else how great this person is. And that's okay. It really is. We just continue to do our part and be thankful to be a part of something, a body that works together. Moses had a role to play. Moses had a role of leadership, a role of concern. And for a group to be successful, it needs leaders. Notice it was Moses that organized the whole thing. 
It was Moses that gave Joshua the instructions that were needed. It was Moses that was hearing from God and doing what God had instructed. It was Moses that sat there watching over this people that he was leading. Pouring every ounce of energy, as menial as the task really might seem to be, but doing everything he could to keep that staff held high so that his people could live. And that often is the mantle of leadership. Sometimes leadership is not being down in the fray, is not being with Joshua and the army, but it's overseeing and it's caring and it's doing everything possible to help those under the leadership to succeed. Again, we take away any part of this and it doesn't work. But as we look at this story, something that we've hinted at but needs to be brought out further is simply the importance of help. As we work together, now as we all have a part to play in the, role, in, in the kingdom of God, every one of us is going to need some help. Moses was an incredibly powerful man. Moses is one of the greatest prophets and characters in all of the Bible. But on that day... Something as simple as tired arms kept Moses back from winning the day for God's people. Or sometimes we simply grow tired. We have older brothers and sisters whose faith is incredible. But their bodies have been worn out by the long years of this life. They're not able to do all the things that their spirit would prompt them to do. And they need help. We have younger brothers and sisters who may be in the prime of their health and the prime of their life, but they're facing struggles and discouragement and trials that weaken them. And they need help. That brother or sister that looks to be so faithful, that seems to be so knowledgeable, that just seems to be able to live the Christian life without question and without reservation, needs help sometimes. Now when Paul traveled, I think it's interesting to note, we often lift Paul up and we don't stop to think about what Paul needed. Have you ever stopped and considered the fact that Paul always traveled, if possible, with companions? And he referred to them frequently as his co-laborers, his co-soldiers, his helpers. Why is that? Because as powerful and as amazing as Paul was, he needed help. He needed encouragement. He needed someone to hold his arms up some days. And some days he needed to hold up the arms of others. He reminded the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 through 5 to bear each other's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. The Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14, he encouraged the Christians to help the weak. We need help, and we need to help others. It takes humility to accept help, so let's humble ourselves and accept help. What if Moses would have refused the help because, after all, he was Moses? Thankfully, he didn't do that. But also realize that even the smallest help can have big effect. Again, holding up someone's elbows is a pretty menial, thankless job. 
How thankful was the Joshua, you think, that Aaron and her did that. And sometimes the ways you help may be second nature. It may be such a small, trivial thing that you don't even think about helping. You just do it. Because why wouldn't you? Maybe what you do is, again, one of those thankless jobs. You think, I don't know what this good this is going to do. But you do it anyway. We never know how big of an impact even the smallest action and the smallest help, what it may have. We simply do our role and we help. And ultimately, as we work together, as we help one another, as we serve one another, as we fulfill our roles and our parts, this story is once again a reminder that we do all of this while trusting in God. It was, after all, not Joshua, not Moses, not Aaron or Hur that truly won the victory that day, but it was God. That's very clear from the fact that they won or they lost, depending on whether or not Moses held up a staff or not. I don't think there's ever been another victory in a military campaign in the history of the world that was decided based upon whether someone was holding up a stick. I've heard some people try to explain this. I've heard people say, well, if Moses was holding up this staff, the, the Israelites could look at it and they would be encouraged and so they would fight harder. But when they looked and it was down, they grew discouraged. That's not what it was. You think it was just a matter of giving them a little extra oomph in the fight? God was teaching a lesson. God was reminding them that it was not their strength. But it was His fighting with them and for them that was going to win the day. That staff of God was so important. If you go back to Exodus 4 verse 20, this is after the burning bush and God has spoke to Moses and called Moses and He's given him these signs including the staff turning to a serpent. And in Exodus 4 verse 20 it says that Moses left and he's heading back to Egypt and he's brought his wife and he's brought his children and he has brought the staff of God. And that staff is with them, like I've already mentioned. It's there when he confronts Pharaoh. It's a big part of when he would pronounce the, the plagues. Often he would use his staff in some way. When they come to the Red Sea, he uses the staff to stretch it out over the Red Sea. Not Moses that's parting the Red Sea, it's God. Just before this battle, when there was thirst among the camp, and God told Moses on this first occasion at least, to strike the rock with the staff of God, and water poured forth. What is it? Why is it so important? Because it is a symbol, it is a reminder that it is God's strength, that He is the Deliverer. And that is true yet today. It is God that is our deliverer. When you look through the Psalms over and over and over again, the Psalms refer to God as a refuge, as a fortress, as a savior and a deliverer. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Notice how often Paul in just those few verses says, He did this. He he, he, who is it that delivers us? It is God. Who has overcome Satan and the enemy? It is God. 
who has destroyed, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame? It is God. Who has canceled the record of our debt? It is God. You back up just a few verses. Verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. As you go about your life and I go about mine and we go through some of the most menial tasks and we help one another and we serve one another and do we do what we can to be a light and we do what we can to serve others and to influence the world for good and we look and we read the news and we read the newspaper, and we just face the discouragements of life and we begin to wonder if all this menial effort is worth it, remember this. We're not just a social club that has gathered to be nice to one another and make the world a slightly better place. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. What that means is that as we go about our day-to-day -day lives, facing our challenges, facing our trials, doing what little bit we can here and what little bit we can there, we're doing it with God. And it is He who is working. And it is He who is equipping. And it is He who is empowering. So yes, it is powerful. And yes, it is effective, not because of my talent, not because of your philosophy, not because of somebody else know-how, but because of God. Because He is our deliverer. But that also means that we have a part to play. Like I said, this was the first time that God had sent Israel to battle. So far, He had taken care of the Egyptians. He had wiped out Pharaoh and his army. One of the very interesting, in fact, one of the curious things about God as we read and learn about Him in the Old Testament is He doesn't always do things the same way. Sometimes God fights for us, like with Pharaoh, with Egypt. But sometimes God fights through us, like He did with Amalek. It's not that God's playing a lesser part. He's just doing it differently. Kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah, where God rained down His judgment from the heavens and destroyed the city by His own hand. That was the same judgment of God that would later be meted out in the land of Canaan. But instead of raining fire from the sky, He brought His nation Israel to enact His judgment. Sometimes God fights for us. Sometimes He fights through us. But what we can always rest assured of is that God will always do what we cannot. And He will empower us to do what we can. I don't know how. I don't know how that always works. But we can trust in God to do so. We see that at the cross. God has done what we cannot God has paid the price that we could never pay. God has offered the price that was fit to truly wash away and redeem our sins. There was absolutely nothing you or I could do after we sinned even one time. There was no hope in all eternity we would ever find a way to pay that price. So God paid it for us. But we can be faithful. And we can believe in Christ 
And we can change our ways and our commitments and our allegiance. And we can live for Jesus. And so God calls us to do that. And He also equips us to do that. He gives us His Word. He gives us the knowledge we need. He gives us everything that is required for life and godliness and calls us to do what we can by His grace and His mercy and His power. And with that knowledge, we can go forward from this day forth, always doing what we can and trusting in God for everything else. As Paul would write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and 7, I'm paraphrasing this. You can go look up the exact words. But he said something along the lines that I planted and Apollos watered and God gave the increase. And that's what you and I are doing. We're laborers. We're citizens. We're soldiers. And we're working together. We have different roles, we have different functions, we have different talents, we have different weaknesses. But we come together as a body and we help one another and we serve one another and we support one another. And together we march forth as an army that is conquering new territory for our King, for King Jesus. And it is He who truly is at our head and who is empowering us and leading us and so every day we fight a little more, every day we plant, every day we water, and every day we trust in God and His grace and His mercy and His wisdom to grant the increase as He sees fit. And we do that today and we do that tomorrow. And helping one another, our hands can be steady in this work until the going down of the sun when there will finally be eternal victory. And what a day that will be when we can lay down the swords of spiritual warfare, when we can lay down the instruments and tools of our daily menial service, and we can simply enter the reward and the home of the eternal King and join the victory of the saints. But until then, let's keep working and laboring together for that goal. I hope that this study's encouraged you to play your role, to do your part. If you don't know what that part is, Learn it. Work with others. Seek what others and their advice and what they can help you with. If you know your part and you're doing it, keep doing it and help others do theirs. But whatever, whoever you are, please play your role in the kingdom of God and together help all of us enjoy the victory of heaven one day.